Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. The Advent story from the Gospel of Mark is a story of how a king comes to save his people. It begins in chapter 1, which I would invite you to uh, turn with me there. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, a part that we won't read, but an integral part of the story, uh, uh, but an unusual part of the story, is that Matthew begins this Advent, this gospel, the story of uh, the greatest story ever told about the greatest person who's ever lived, the God-man Emmanuel. This story from Matthew begins with a genealogy. It begins with a list of names. Matthew, why have us, why have us navigate, wade our way through a list of names before we get to your story? Don't you have enough to tell, Matthew, that, that we could just skip the names and jump right in? And of course, we'll do that tonight, but Matthew doesn't do it. He has a reason. God, through the Holy Spirit, has a reason for including this genealogy, because this list of names is not just a list of any names. It's a summary to anybody who's paid attention to human history up to this point. It's a summary of milestone moments of a story that God has stitched together from the beginning of time before the foundation of the world. It's a list of names like Abraham and David and Ruth and Rahab. These names would remind the reader of their stories and the place that we are in human history when Matthew begins telling the advent of Christ. It's a reminder that God made a promise to Eve that there would come one who would crush the serpent's head. It's a reminder that he made a promise to Abraham that through his descendants, all the families, all the ethnicities, all the tribes, nations, and tongues of the world in all time would be blessed. This list of names reminds us that God made a, a promise by showing Moses the Passover, that there would come a time where you would need no more Passover lambs because there would be a lamb who would be the Passover once and for all. And Moses, there will be a greater prophet than you. Don't worry, there's one coming. It's a reminder of the promise to David that there's going to be another servant king who will be greater than you, David, or Solomon, or any king that's ever lived, and his throne will reign forever. It's a reminder that there is a high priest coming to give the sacrifice once and one time for all, who would give us his clean robes. That's why the genealogy is in Matthew, to remind us of that and to make sure that when we get to the point where we read the name, the name above all names, that when we read the name, we'll read and we'll understand what that name is there for. So that's where we'll pick up in chapter 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As we work through the story tonight or this morning, if you're joining us online, we'll do it through three movements. The first one is this. Jesus will be the child of Mary and Joseph. There's a famous fictional businessman, Michael Scott, who said, engagement's not a big deal because engaged ain't married. Michael Scott. Okay, that's okay. It's okay if you don't know who he is. He's fa- you can look him up. Uh, but Michael Scott said that engaged is not married, therefore it's not a big deal. But that is not how we're to interpret betrothal, which we often compare to engagement. We think of it similarly. But betrothal was a contract. It was a covenant. Joseph and Mary were considered husband and wife. Mary was his bride. And so when he found that Mary was with child and he was not the father, he needed legal grounds if he was going to divorce her, which those legal grounds would have been adultery, unfaithfulness. But Joseph, the Bible tells us, was a just man. In Greek, that means he was a good dude. He was a really nice guy. Joseph could have been public with his concerns about Mary's faithfulness. He needed, there was going to be something on that divorce certificate, and it was going to say adultery if he was going to be granted such a certificate. But Joseph did not want her to face what could happen, which could have been a death penalty. If she was proven to be unfaithful, which her being with child would have given some evidence of that. If that had been proven to be the case and that had gone public, she could have been granted a death penalty by being stoned. So Joseph, as he's thinking about these things, he's like, well, I don't don't want to, to, to go in that route, in that way. I want her to be safe. I want her to be okay. The text doesn't explicitly tell us that Joseph thought that she was unfaithful. I mean, we're probably safe to assume that that was certainly something he contemplated as he, as the text tells us, he considers these, considered these things, but he might have also considered maybe she's not lying. Maybe the child in her womb is actually from God. Maybe one moment Joseph's like, I, I, I don't, why was she unfaithful? I don't understand. And the next moment she's like, he's like, she's never lied before. Why should I suspect anything but that this child is from God? We don't know exactly all the things that Joseph considered, but we know he was human. And we know this. It seems like he was, he was pretty close to landing on a thought that his role was not, he did not have a role in this story. Here in the text, it seems like Joseph is like, maybe he's, whether or not she's been unfaithful, whether this child is really from God, Regardless, I gotta, I gotta set her free here. We gotta, we're gonna, we're gonna cut ties. My marriage is is just a 
a casualty, it's collateral damage of a miracle, or there's been unfaithfulness, whatever it is, I no longer have a role in the story of Mary and this child. And as he's contemplating these things, as he's wrestling, as he's contending, as he's, he's probably being kept awake at night thinking about all that's happening in his life, an angel appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David. Now, if we had read the genealogy, which we skipped, I hope that's okay, but had we read it, you would have noticed that Joseph is the son of a guy named Jacob, not the son of a guy named David. So, angel, why call him son of David? Bad note-taking? Did you, did you fail to study up before you visited Joseph? Is it, what, what's going on, angel? Why are, you, why are you saying son of David? Oh, but there's a reason. Of course there's a reason. Joseph... The humble carpenter was from a line of kings. He was from the same line as King David. He's from the same lineage of Abraham and Isaac, etc., through David, through whom the promised Messiah would come. Joseph, before the foundation of the world, bud, you've got a role in this story. You are the connection that the Messiah has to David. You, Joseph, have a role. And not only do you just connect some dots. Joseph, you have a task. You have to marry Mary. You have to be in this boy's life. And you have to name him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. That brings us to our second movement of the story and this is, this is where I think it gets good. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Listen to what's in that name, Jesus. Joseph, he got to do a lot of parental things. He seems to have taught Jesus how to do carpentry, um, though I don't know that Jesus wouldn't have already known how to do carpentry. Like, when, they're, when Jesus is a kid, are, are Mary and Joseph like, hey, you got to go wash the dish? Okay, you washed them already. Like, how does that work? Like, does, does their son assign them chores? You just wonder about the childhood. We don't have a lot of details, but we do have one detail. And it's that the name was picked before Joseph got to have a say in it. And there's a reason. Because we picked the name, Joseph. The name that you're going to name him is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Parents, I think we can probably agree that we like the, the thought, we like to believe that our children probably are destined for greatness, right? But Joseph, in naming him Jesus, agreed, whether he did it implicitly or whether he knew, he agreed, this kid is destined to die. Because Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. It means, this name means that the second person of the Trinity, before the foundation of the world, agreed to God the Father's plan that he would incarnate, he would become human, he would become like us, he, like us. he would wear flesh, he would be God in the flesh, he would be the Emmanuel, which means 
God with us, but that he would die. By becoming, he would humble himself by becoming us, but he would not stop there. He would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because this Jesus, this gift given to Mary, given to humanity, given to Joseph, this gift of Jesus, his very name means he will save his people from their sins. The disciples often got it a little mixed up. The Pharisees definitely had it wrong. You, you wonder even if Mary and Joseph to some extent were like, yeah, but he's also going to save us from Roman oppression, right? But Jesus, other plans. Because he was not going to be another name in a list of names. Jesus is not going to be just a, a checkbox box on, a, on a genealogy of kings. He was coming to usher in his kingdom. He is the king of kings. And to bring people into his kingdom to save his people, he had to save them from the thing that was really oppressing them, oppressing them, which is death and sin. Because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And what can dead people do to fix that condition? There's nothing. There's no amount of good that can outweigh death. There's no way to crawl out of our own oppression. We had to be saved. And to be saved from our sin and its penalty death, someone perfect had to die. Look, it was never going to be bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons and doves. It was, that was never meant to save. That was a placeholder. It was an example. It was a, a visual of something much greater. And if we continue in Matthew, we get to the, I, I think Tad would agree, the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on a Mount. I'm getting, we got a hard amen there, okay? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, look, paraphrase, your thoughts, they equal adultery and they equal murder. I mean, in case you thought this didn't apply to you, no, 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 no. It absolutely does. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And by dying on the cross, the absolutely 100% perfect human who was also holy God in the flesh, the Emmanuel, was murdered. And it looked like he lost. And you wonder if Eve was somewhere watching being like, no, 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 that's where his heel got bruised. He's not losing. You wonder if Mary was like, I rem he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Because exactly the moment we thought he lost, he won. And this death, this eternal death that we deserve by offending and sinning against an eternal God, he took it into his grave, and then he got out, and he left the death behind. He saves his people from their sin. Our third movement, Jesus will fulfill his, miss, his mission to save his people until it's fully accomplished. He saves his people, his very name. Joseph named him a name that the angel gave him that for all generations 
when we hear that name, we'll remember that he saves his people from his sin, but who are his people? Well, we read about them. Well, no, we didn't. Yep. Sorry, my bad, we skipped it. But we could have read about it. We could have read about who his people are. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, this genealogy that he gave us, that's his people, right? The descendants of Abraham. We know who God's people are, right? Except in that list of names are Ruth and Rahab, who were absolutely not born of Abraham's lineage. So even in the genealogy that Matthew gives us, if the discerning eye is like, well, you know, maybe there's something else to being considered God's people than being the children of Abraham. And I hope this isn't a spoiler for John. Uh, just flag me down if it is. But in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, some, some Jewish people who believe, just kind of a mix of people. And at some point he's like, if you are going to be my people, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you uh, abide in my word, and they're like, we're, we're from Abraham. We've never been slaves. And then if you're reading it, you might think, well, you, you guys kind of were slaves at one point. You were slaves in Egypt, but okay, all right. Regardless, like, Jesus it's pretty clearly saying there's more to being my people. There's something different to being my people than being children of Abraham. What is it? It's abiding in his word. And if you're abiding in his word, and this, I, I, it's a risk of a spoiler for John, but in John chapter 3, Jesus says to this Pharisee Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He's very confused by that. You've got to become alive, Nicodemus. And if you're still around Nicodemus, when we get to verse 16, you know it. For in this way, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that so whosoever believes in him will have eternal life, will have kingdom life, will enter into Jesus' kingdom. If we're going to be in Jesus' kingdom, if we're going to be his disciple, we abide in his word, we abide in what he tells us to do, and his will for us is to believe that he died and he rose and paid the penalty that we deserve, and he conquered death for us. The people who are his people, the people who Jesus died to save, they're the people who believe. And the people who believe are called the church. We get that word church from the word ecclesia, which could be more literally translated, maybe called out gathering. If you were going to name a church, called out gathering sounds like a fun one, right? Um, that's free. We're not using that one. So you can file that away. Peter talks about the called out gathering in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Peter's talking about Jesus' people. He's talking about the church. He's writing a letter to the church. He says, church, you guys are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. How cool is that, right? You are called out of darkness. You once walked in darkness, but you're called to walk in this marvelous light of Jesus. You weren't even a people, but now you're a people. You didn't have any mercy, but now you have mercy. This is a description of the church. 
The church manifests itself in two ways. There's the church universal. Just roll with me. We're going to go a little bit fast here. The church universal is all people who've ever believed in Jesus, all times, at all places, everywhere. All tribes, nations, and tongues. It includes people who believed before Jesus even came. We can talk about that later. It includes people who believed during Jesus' time, after Jesus' time, during our time, however much time there is in the future. It's all people, all times, everywhere. It's a really big family. Then there's the church local, made up of people who are in the church universal. It's people who believe in a time and probably a specific-ish location, right? And it's people who gather together and they covenant, they promise, they contract with one another to do the one another's of Scripture, one another's such as bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, uh, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. For more one another, see the rest of the Bible. They gather together and they promise and they commit and they encourage each other and they, they practice the, uh, the sacraments or the, uh, or the ordinances, as Baptists prefer to call them, which are the Lord's Supper, communion, right? Do this in remembrance of me. The church, the local church does that together. They baptize, which is a demonstration of somebody coming from faith or, or having faith and passing from death to life as we're immersed in the water and brought back up, symbolizing Christ's death and resurrection. The, the local church is a smaller family but it's the body of Christ. The local church is where uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, where we see the list of spiritual gifts. The local church is where the spiritual gifts are practiced. Chris asked me to share a little bit about a new local church in Boomer. Uh, Some of our team is here. Uh, I won't tell you where to not embarrass them, but if you don't see them, it's pretty obvious they're in the balcony. I guess I did tell you where. But together, uh, we've called it a church plant. It's a church plant on paper, but sometimes we use the language of becoming a church because in our situation, we're not actually leaving and going anywhere. We're all live there, at least kind of this initial team. This new church in Boomer will meet at, uh, at Camp Harrison. I want to tell you just a little bit about Camp Harrison because it, it matters to the story of, the, of this local church. Uh, it, Camp Harrison has been around for 20-some years. Somebody can correct me. It's, it's been a while. What? 2004. That's not 20 years, is it? That's my bad. Uh, 17-ish years. Uh, in those 17 years, every I don't think it's an exaggeration to say every child who has come to that camp has heard the gospel. Because that camp's mission has been to deliver the gospel. During the summer, it's a resident camp, which means that children come and they stay uh, overnight for a week or two weeks or three weeks or more at a time, as well as uh, there's an additional 50 or more staff who come and live there. Uh, Most of the, the campers and staff come from probably the Charlotte area, but really all over the world. There's a staffer who comes all the way from India. There's, uh, there's kids from all over, uh, at least the United States, arguably the whole world. And it's been a commitment since the beginning that at Camp Harrison, those kids would hear the gospel. It would be preached. It would be shared. It'll be modeled for them. And many, many kids have heard the gospel, they believed it, they've become part of the church, and they have 
uh, the church universal, and they've been encouraged to be part of the church local. They've been uh, discipled, and they've been, uh, and many of them have come back to serve again and to perpetuate the gospel ministry that is happening there. So there are several families who live either on campus or very close to campus full-time, and then there are several uh, uh, what are called seasonal staff, even though they often are hang around, seasonal staff may hang around for years. So it transcends seasons, if you will. But uh, the seasonal staff is usually made up of uh, summer staff who uh, live on campus and continue the, the work of Camp Harrison during the, uh, the uh, off-season or the conference and retreat season. And so why I say all that is to say that uh, it's, there's a, a, a huge gospel work happening at Camp Harrison, but it's often very challenging for the staff to break away. During the summer, Sunday morning is part of the experience. During even the fall and the spring, there are a lot of groups who come who, who hear the gospel, it, the staff facilitate gospel work for them, but it often bleeds into Sunday morning. So it's very challenging, especially for, for staffers and families who have come from other parts of the area to break away enough Sundays to really build community in a local church. And that's sort of what started our, our recognition of the need, that the people at Camp Harrison need the local church, our people, who are preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel because Jesus left the church behind to facilitate the work of spreading the gospel to the world. So the church is an integral part of gospel. So we knew that that need was there, but we also know that we don't want to be a church for camp. That would be silly and weird. We want to be a church for Boomer. Why Boomer? Boomer has 2,000 people. I don't know if y'all knew that. It's bigger than you might think. Uh, it's actually over 2,000 people. And then, of course, there's Ferguson and uh, Elk and Darby and uh, Moravian Falls and uh, 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 the, the Gap. What's the Gap one? Oh, my goodness. The, the, the road that goes from Boomer. And... Russell Gap. Thank you. Uh, I can edit that out because I have the power. So for the video, you might not see that stuttering. Um, or we might leave it and keep it pure. I don't know. Uh, it's a creative decision uh, that our team will make. So uh, Russell Gap, Kings Creek, Little Rock, uh, Lenore, I know the rest of the names of the places, um, Cedar Mountain, there's all sorts of places, all sorts of communities, and within about, a, let's call it a 10-mile-ish square radius, of a square mile radius of the, uh, let's call it the Dollar General, uh, within about that zone, 66% of people, about two-thirds of people, would acknowledge that they are Christians, but a third of those people attend a church regularly, as defined by the survey, twice a month. So there's a need. There are people who believe in Jesus, who are part of the church, who need to be part of the local church, the manifestation of the universal church locally. There's people who need it. Will they come to us? We don't know, but we sure, we sure do pray that as we go to them, that they'll be encouraged to go to us or somewhere else. But there's also the other third of people in that, in that radius around Boomer who need Jesus still. Will they hear it from us? I hope so, and we pray so. We, we are looking for them to find them, to give it to them. Will they believe because of us? Absolutely not. They'll believe because of Jesus, because Jesus is the one that saves his people from their sin. But that's why Boomer. And that's why I hope and I pray that if you're, you're here so you got to believe in the local church a little bit. 
or you're watching online, you got to be at least dipping your toe back in the water of the church. But unfortunately, the church has been associated by, it is associated for many with hurt and pain, disappointment, even abuse. And I know, I know one sermon isn't going to fix that. I know one time of reading a message about Jesus is not going to fix years of trauma and pain. I, I know that. But I pray if you've held with me this far, that here in my last regularly scheduled sermon, we don't know if it's the last ever, right? But here in the last one regularly scheduled amongst the, the local church that calls itself Wilkesboro Baptist, I, I pray, I hope, I implore you, if you're on the fence about whether or not the church is important in your life, please reconsider. Because Jesus was called Jesus because he will save and has saved and is saving his people from their sin. And his people is our, is our fix that grammatically in your mind, the church. They're the church universal and they're the church local. Listen, please, if you will, Jesus loves his church so much. It's his bride. We're betrothed. The church is betrothed to Jesus. And there will come a time where we'll meet him, the fullness of his kingdom. But just like Jesus is plan A for salvation, there was never another plan. It was never going to go another way. Before the foundation of the world, it was decided that Jesus would be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin by becoming the God-man, the Emmanuel, God with us, and dying on the cross and raising from the grave. That was plan A. That was part of the story all along. Plan A for the way that that story gets told to the world is the church. Jesus did all that work to save us, and then he ascended back to his kingdom. And he left us, the church, the church that's also called Jesus' body. We are the closest thing to Emmanuel that the world has in the space between his first advent when he came to save us and his second advent when he comes to be with us forever. The church is the closest thing to Emmanuel in the flesh until Jesus comes back. The church is so, so vital so important, so loved by God. And it really has a good track record of being a light in dark places and standing up for, for, uh, against oppression and for justice and for mercy. And the church, the church universal and the church local is your family. If you believe in Jesus, the church is your family, your brothers and sisters, your eternal brothers and and sisters, I would implore you, I would implore us in this room during this Advent season, remember that they called him Jesus for a reason. This time of year when people who don't even know Jesus are singing his name because they're in their songs. They called him Jesus for a reason because he will save his people from their sins. And there's still a future tense in that because while he has accomplished the work, we're still being born. We're still finding new people who don't know him yet. 
We're still reaching to the nations and to the tribes and the tongues. But that work will be fulfilled. It will get finished. Just like the work that he did to save us, the work that he does to spread his kingdom to the ends of the world will be accomplished and it will happen with the church and the gates of hell will not even come close to prevailing against this church. So as we close, as we sing and we pray, let's petition God for help to remember that this baby called Jesus was called Jesus because of how much he loves his people whom he has saved and is saving from their sins. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this story, for, for putting it on paper so that we can read it and be reminded that one of the most shocking miracles of all of human history happened with Mary and with Joseph, and that you orchestrated that so that you could save us from all that we had done wrong and be with us forever. And I, I pray for anybody who hasn't yet believed that, that upon hearing it today, that they might believe it, that you'd open their hearts to believe it whether in this room, whether online. Uh, and God, you've, you've given us a gift in the church, and we don't always do a great job with this gift that you've given us. But you have assured us that you will save us completely and utterly. You will perfect us to the end. We are in your kingdom, and there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves Nothing the church can do to break its covenant with you because you've covenanted with us. So help us celebrate that this Advent season and help us be the church and be your body to the world. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.